0: Geekscape is welcome to a brand new Geekscape episode. If you, this is your first Geekscape, you're about to hear us talk about movies, video games, comic books, TV, a lot of TV in this episode, and uh, basically all your favorite pop culture stuff. If you have plans to go to Comic Con, you can come visit us at our booth. Our mainstay is there, and that should pretty much tell you that uh, if you're into all that stuff, then you're at the right spot. If this is not your first Geekscape, well, welcome back. I'm, I really hope that you've spent the last couple weeks telling people about Geekscape and how we're now at the Westwood One Studios recording here uh, with our friends. And also, I want to tell you guys about our sponsors real quick. That would be Loot Crate. Uh, Every month, they send me a bunch of boxes of their cool stuff. It's like the Loot Crate Standard, the Loot Crate DX, the Loot uh, Anime, Loot Gaming, all sorts of cool stuff. There's Loot Wear, which is great. Helps me from doing laundry as much as I need to. Uh, But you can get all that stuff at Lucrate.com slash Geekscape. Use the promo code Geekscape and you'll get yourself a discount on all your subscriptions. So I think you should go out there and go to the website and check out what box might be right for you, especially if you're into all that stuff. We got E3 here in town, which is pretty awesome. Um, We're going to have a lot of articles up on Geekscape.net about E3, a lot of the announcements. Some of them are already up on the site. And maybe next week we'll even do like a Geekscape E3 wrap-up show. Uh, If you want any any more of that uh, Geekscape like blend of information on on uh, video games we have a geekscape games podcast so check that stuff out because i know e3 is the big thing right now we're not going to talk about it on this episode uh we will talk about the Stowe story labs though if you guys are screenwriters you should totally apply to the Stowe story labs go to story, story go to stow story com. there is an e at the end of stow uh, just google it Stowe story labs i've been there twice they've helped my screenwriting a whole lot. And if you're a listener of Geekscape, they're going to give you a discount on your application if you put in Geek Lab uh, for your uh, discount code. So those are our sponsors. That's what we do here on Geekscape. We're glad to have you. And uh, this episode is going to be really cool. We're going to get on the phone with Kenny Johnson. Kenny Johnson's a producer, director, writer. He has a new book out, but you may know him because he basically built our childhood. He he was the creator and showrunner of all these shows in the 70s and 80s. Like, oh, I don't know, the $6 million man. The Bionic Woman, the Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno that we all loved. The um, V, which is like one of my favorite. I remember watching V. It was an invasion show. And just seeing the, that one scene everybody talks about when you realize that they're aliens because that one woman eats like a, a hamster or a gerbil. And you're like, what the hell's happening? And then you realize there are lizard people that are invading the earth. Uh, and, of course, Alien Nation, which was a cool show. Towards the late 80s, early 90s, it was a movie. Then it was a show. And it was awesome. Uh, so he created all that stuff. It was like, hey, we're a sci-fi show. We're going to talk sci-fi. Uh, so be ready for that. Um, also, we got to pause and talk about Adam West. Adam West passed away. He's the original Batman for the 1960s Batman TV show. Biff, pow, bam. We're going to miss him. Uh, he was my first Batman. Uh, I remember like running home from the bus stop every day after school because... In like the lead up to the Tim Burton Batman, uh, I think like TBS or TNT or USA played like the the TV channel, the cable channel played back to back Batman episodes of the uh, 1960s Batman. (coughs) Sorry. And so I would like run home and watch back to back Batman episodes because I was so stoked. So I, I pretty much watched all of them and I loved them. And so when I saw that Adam West died, it was pretty sad. (coughs) I'm so sad I'm coughing Let me drink some water I'm here with Lindsay Uh, She's running the board today And um, say hi Lindsay to everybody
1: Hey everybody how's it going Did
0: you ever watch the old Batman shows Or you're younger than me
1: Oh I'm probably just a smidge younger than you Um, And I was busy with the ponies (laughs) You know, don't <laughs> I hate hey, to hey. admit that on the geekscape. No, no, the, it's fine <laughs> like a because we
0: have plenty of us who are still into the ponies.
1: Oh, yeah, the Bronies.
0: Yeah, yeah we have a couple. I met
1: them. They're wonderful.
0: Our good friend Shane O'Hare is a Brony and you went undercover with the Bronies, didn't you? I
1: did. I did. I got to go undercover. I saw some cool Brony magical music and I saw a bunch of cosplay and all kinds of stuff. I saw these army bronies. Mm-hmm. That was the weirdest.
0: Here's the thing with Lindsay. She, every time we start the show now, and it's only been twice, she says, I don't know anything about this stuff. And she feels really self-conscious about uh, <laughs> the, the contents of Geekscape. She does just fine. She went under. She did more Geekscape stuff than I would. I wouldn't go undercover <laughs> with the bronies. It was amazing.
1: <laughs> and so uh,
0: you really have no reason to be self-conscious. And you're going to be here doing Geekscape with me. Uh, I know they keep you busy here at Westwood One, so sometimes you'll be on the mic, sometimes you'll be running around doing work for Westwood One, but I love having you because you're like a sounding board for, for me, and you help me tell whether or not I'm funnier. Or, <laughs> or like <laughs> or if I'm being boring, I can see your eyes glaze over. So it really <laughs> it really helps me to have you in the studio. That's
1: probably um, just the lack of coffee. But I
0: realized the geekscape game is like don't know you. So I wanted to um actually ask you a couple questions in okay. th- th- this is all you
1: okay. um
0: but just to get to know you. Okay. All right. Let's do so the geekscape is getting to me. Okay. Just real simple. Where are you from?
1: I'm born and raised in California.
0: Okay. Okay, yeah. that's easy enough. <laughs> all right. Um what is like your favorite comic book movie?
1: I have a feeling once I see Wonder Woman, that will take over. Okay.
0: Um. That we spoiled it for you on the last episode. <laughs> That's anyway, it was very
1: enjoyable. <laughs> um. I've always really enjoyed Wolverine, and okay. I've probably been more, uh, I've probably spent more time with him in the couple little comic books I have that I've actually looked at, mm-hmm. um, than I have in the movies. But I just. I kind of like this grit always. Okay,
0: the answer we were looking for was Spider Man 2. Oh, just kidding. It's okay. Uh, you know, yeah. no, I failed. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, so Wait, ask it, me again. Is, <laughs> is Wolverine your favorite comic book character?
1: No, Spider Man, of course. What? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I, I tricked you into. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that one's not right either. We, we were actually looking for Mister Fantastic. Oh man. Um, what's your favorite video game?
1: Can, you can play it be on games? the computer. Yeah, it
0: can totally. I would be it. love League you're of act- Legends. You actually get points if it's on the computer. Yes. <laughs> if you're PC master race, you get points here. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So League of Legends. Yes. You actively
1: play League of Legends. I haven't played it actively in about a year. Okay. Because I've just decided I'm going to work my life away, which sure. I love to. But uh, I used to play it daily. Like it used to consume way too much of my time, like wow. embarrassingly too much of my time.
0: The geeks is us now in love with you. Uh, <laughs> your favorite TV show.
1: Um. Wow. I really enjoyed Shameless.
0: Oh, it's good? Oh, yeah. You it's love it. So it's chaotic. like in its fifth or sixth season.
1: Yes, I haven't gotten that far, but I watched the first four and they were enjoyable. Yeah, no,
0: we were hoping you'd say The Flash.
1: Oh, just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I'm the one
0: kidding. I've been watching Riverdale, which is oh. so soapy. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. Um, not comic book related, but I've been binging on One Tree Hill and that's kind of... <laughs> the original. Yeah, I'm a little ashamed. <laughs> that's but fine. It is what it that's is.
0: That's fine. Okay, so guys, you got to know Lindsay a little bit better uh we're glad to have her Mm -hmm. um awesome see you have more credit than you give yourself (laughs) credit for and you and you brought me a soda in the morning so thank you yes points Points. oh and the
1: flash is my favorite tv show
0: get out of here with that (laughs) don't cater to us all right don't cater to us we're just a bunch of mouth breathers
1: that actually might have been my favorite tv show but Oh, my God. What was it called?
0: I'm watching a lot of Silicon Valley. No, eh? mouse Silicon Valley is. What's They mouse just used
1: that in the show.
0: I thought they used it in Silicon Valley, which is why I brought it up.
1: Oh, maybe. No. Oh, my gosh. This is terrible for radio. Who's in
0: it? What's in it? All oh,
1: the little kids. Eight. With with the girl. Was, there, what was Smurfs?
0: It? They're not kids. Oh They're grown God. Smurfs.
1: No, it's a TV show. It just came out. It was oh. on Netflix.
0: Oh, oh, Stranger Things. Yes. Yeah, Stranger Things is awesome.
1: Yeah, the little boy calls them out for <laughs> yeah, and That's oh. who we are. Okay, I mean, that was my favorite. We
0: are pridefully antisocial, unpopular. It's Geekscape. That's what we do. Um, so what do you say we get uh, Kenny Johnson on the on the phone? He has this new book out called Man of Legends. Uh, he wants to talk to you guys about the book, but I want to talk to him not only about the book, but also about his TV and film career because not only did he do all those TV shows, he also directed one of the original Superman movies. Nope, not the Christopher Donna ones. Shaquille O'Neal's Steel from the mid <laughs> late '90s. You know what? It's the gig, baby, and he did it. So, without steel, maybe you don't have the you know maybe you don't have Wonder Woman. You don't know how the you don't know how the ball bounces. Okay, uh, is it cool if we get him on the phone? Yeah, let's do this. All right, on the phone we got Kenny Johnson. I first met Kenny when I was teaching at the New York Film Academy, and Kenny would guest lecture for us uh, about. Uh, filmmaking and I keep how to how to do filmmaking on a budget even when you had a budget how to really squeeze every last dollar out of your budget and there were some really creative things that you that you mentioned in that lecture?
2: Well, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, I think I've probably since renamed it. It's now called The Filmmaking Experience, Life in the Trenches. And uh, what I really try to do in the class is to give uh, the students a sense of what it's like to really be in the trenches of filmmaking, really in the middle of the battle. And uh, um, so that it's uh, it's not just, uh, you know, an old guy standing up there theorizing and telling war stories, but, uh, but rather saying, OK, here's what happened when you're on the set and everything goes wrong. <laughs>
0: you <know? laughs> You've told some pretty amazing stories. Just to give the uh, audience a bit of a refresher, uh, Kenny was the showrunner, creator of a lot of our favorite shows when we were growing up, uh, from The Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, uh, to V, which I loved so much, The Incredible Hulk uh, with Lou Ferrigno, which I also loved so much, and then Alien Nation. Um, what, what, what was like your entry into uh, television?
2: Um, <laughs> it's funny. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a there's a couple of uh, wrinkles to that. But I I went to I, I came out of uh, what is now Carnegie Mellon University. It was in Carnegie Tech, uh, the drama department there, which was one of the premier drama departments in uh, in the United States uh, in those days. And it was a theater school. There was no film. There was no TV. It was strictly theater, you know, and learning your craft and Stanislavski and building a character and all that sort of thing. And everybody, most everybody there, sort of turned their nose up at uh, at film and television uh but i had been lucky in my freshman year to have met a young uh, another guy who was a senior when i was just coming in as a freshman uh and he was not in the drama department but he was really sort of a big man on campus he ran the school newspaper he ran a couple of other parts of the school and uh, uh, and he also ran this thing called the film arts society which screened fourteen films each semester every Thursday night, uh, and a student could get a ticket for pay three bucks and see those fourteen films and the guy 's name was Bill Pence, and Bill went on to create the telluride Film Festival, <laughs> which. Wow. He, which he ran uh, with his wife, uh, Stella, for uh, 33, 34 years. Now they, now they run the uh, Turner Classic Festival out here in L.A. every year. And I had been a movie fan, of course, as a kid, but Bill introduced me to the cinema. And uh, because the, the films that we saw at the Film Art Society were the classics from the beginning of filmmaking in the 1910, 20s, uh, up until the contemporary uh, stuff that was then coming out. And it would, they were films from all over the world world. and it was uh, it was really extraordinary and I, I when bill graduated he left the society to me to run and I uh, ran it for four years put myself through school setting up film societies and other colleges around the country and um, uh, which gave me an opportunity to see you know four or five hundred of the greatest films ever made at the same time while I was getting this sort of classic theater training at, at Carnegie so I really had that sort of dual worlds going uh, and when I graduated I went to New York and said Harry I'm ready to make movies and said well why you come to this coast, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, so I got into live TV for a while uh, in uh, in New York City. Uh, a film that I had managed to make, thanks to Bill, also because uh, I, I decided when I was about a, in the middle of my junior year at Carnegie that I should make something do, fight to do something in film. But there was no equipment, there was no film, mm-hmm. there was no, no light, nothing, you know. And Bill, by then, was in the Air Force doing his time there, and he was running a film division, and he borrowed a camera from the Air Force for me, and also some film. And sent it to me and said, "Okay, go make your movie,"
1: uh,
2: and uh, and I made this little uh, thirty-minute uh, sort of noirish uh, thriller. Um I look at it today and say, wow, what a good 20-minute film that would be. <laughs> but uh, but there was some there was some good stuff in it, and it got me hired in New York as a producer-director when I was only 22 uh, in New York City, At first at CBS and then WPIX in New York, uh, where I had a couple of successful rock and roll shows, go figure, you know, uh, but it was what I had to do. Uh, and then sh- about a year into that, after I'd had a fair amount of success as a producer-director in New York, I was invited to join what was then the very first first daytime 90-minute talk variety music show in on american television and it was a very very popular show already uh i'd actually interned on it a little bit while i was in college and uh and i i didn't want to do it i said i don't want to go and do a 90-minute show six times a week with you know that's talk varieties i want to go to california and make movies and they said look just go meet the guy this young executive producer who's running the show he really likes your work he really wants to meet with you so i went over to the warwick hotel in new york and sat down on with Roger Ailes. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he was only two or three years older than me, but he was a firebrand. He was really incredible and brilliant,
1: uh,
2: and had a tremendous sense of humor. And very seductive boy, I'll tell you. He, he uh, conned me into coming down to to, uh, to to join him as a producer on The Douglas Show. They were shooting in Philadelphia. And um, uh, and so, uh, but he said, I'll let you do all the film you want to do. And, and whatever you want to do in film, I'll let, me, let me let you help. I'll let you do it as long as we get our 90 minutes live every day on the air. You know, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I I didn't know Roger in his later years or through the scandalous stuff that he went through at at Fox Uh, the only person I ever saw Roger Ailes hit on was Richard Nixon uh, (laughs) uh, because Nixon came to do the show I mean everybody came to the Mike Douglas show every television star every movie star every major author every writer every every comic every uh, songster every musician every politician uh, and uh, I mean Vice President Humphrey was there I worked with Senator Robert Kennedy. Uh, I booked um, uh, George Wallace on the show when he was the arch bigot of the Western world, uh, and then a couple of weeks later, I had I was sitting down with Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, it was that kind of
0: show, you know. In Roger Ailes' politics never. It was. There were still like an inacency there. Well, then, yeah,
2: no, yeah, it's interesting because Roger was just a very straightforward guy looking to get the truth out of out of everybody. But when Nixon came to do the show in '68 as part of the, his campaign push to be president, uh, after we, after the show wrapped, uh, he, Roger pulled uh, Nixon into his office and said, "Mr. Nixon, you should hire me. I can get you elected." And Nixon said, "How can you do that, Roger?" And uh, and Roger said, "Because what you need is a media advisor." Mm-hmm. He said, "What's a media advisor, Roger?" <laughs> and Roger said, "I am." Him. And he created the term, and he created the job, and Nixon hired him. Wow. And, uh, um, mm-hmm. and Roger was then the, became the Republican's go-to guy. He worked with every president after Nixon to help get them elected all the way up through uh, uh, the latest <laughs> disaster. Yeah. And
0: uh, the creation of right, Fox and, News. And so interestingly it's about, about us,
2: And Roger had told Westinghouse uh, that I should take over The Douglas Show as executive producer, showrunner, mm-hmm. and I was 20 five, twenty-four or 25 years old only and there i was boom uh, doing this uh, huge show and even though i wanted i was just had one one foot out the door i was I decided to go to california when roger threw that in my lap and so i stayed with it for a while and um and and but finally went to california about a year later and said okay here i am hollywood ready to make movies and hollywood said how about a talk show? That's what you do. You're oh, a talk damn. show. You know, so it was uh, my first entry introduction into typecasting. It's not just <laughs> actors that get typecast. It's everybody. <laughs> you know, so so I always tell my film students, be careful what your first success is because that's what they will want you to do forever after. And um, and in California, I was lucky, though, that one of my classmates, whom I had left the film society to handle when I graduated, a guy named Stephen Botchko. Wow. Um, Steve was uh, already had his foot in the door as just a young writer at Universal. This was long before Steve created Hill Street Blues and L.A. Law and NYPD Blue and yada, yada, yada. Uh, he was just a young writer, but he had his foot in the door. And he helped me to get my foot in the door and... Um, uh, and introduced me also to another young guy named Steve Cannell, who uh, uh, was uh, uh, just a story editor on a show called Adam 12 at the time, but he had just finished writing a pilot called The Rockford Files. <laughs> and uh, uh, So the three of us uh, were sort of the class of 1980 at, at Universal, that's what we called ourselves.
1: Uh, and
2: it was the two of them that really, really helped me get my foot uh, in the door, and Steve convinced me that if I could write, I could uh, control my destiny a little more than just try trying to jump in and and be a director. Because, you know, Jonathan, when you're an actor, you can do bit parts and work your way up. But when you're a writer, you can write on spec and hope that somebody will buy your script. Mm -hmm. When you're a director, to give you the money to do it or they don't and until you've done it for somebody else they don't and uh, it was really a catch-22 but uh, but Steve introduced me to um, uh, Harv Bennett who was a friend of his and, a, and an old-time uh, big-time producer at the Universal who was doing Rich Man, Poor Man and a lot of uh, uh, big mini-series and stuff but he also had this show called The Six Million Dollar Man and Harv read one of my unproduced screenplay scripts uh, and loved the writing and asked me to you know what I could do to uh, if i could bring him some ideas because they needed scripts in a hurry for a six million dollar man and i uh, suggested the bride of frankenstein and that's where the bionic woman came from wow and that he was, was really the, the races <laughs> you know that one it was like overnight k- kabam you know
0: that's a really good idea and in, I mean, like looking back, we're like, of course, it would be a a, a bionic woman if there's a six million dollar man. But that was a fresh idea that you.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. It seemed to me the most uh, the most obvious of ideas, uh, and uh, uh, and Harve uh, really liked the idea. And so did Frank Price, and they asked me to. Uh, he said, "Sure, go, you know, write it." <laughs> you know, so I did very fast because they needed it fast. You know, one of the things about doing episodic television uh, anywhere, but particularly at Universal, the the the, the philosophy. Because we don't want it good, we want it Thursday, you know, and uh, uh, because you were always under the gun to uh, to get your show made as quickly and cheaply as possible mm-hmm. and um, uh, and I discovered that I could write and I could write pretty fast and uh, they liked the script for the Bionic Woman enough that they said we want to make it longer and turn it to, into a two parter, nobody had done a two parter before and I said. That's cool. Do I get paid again? <laughs> it, was like, it was like the only money I had made all that year, Jonathan. It was uh, it was really grim, you know. And um, and Harv uh, saw that I had producing chops, obviously, as in addition to uh, to writing and and uh, directing too. He was able to see some stuff that I had done by then, and. Uh, um, uh, and said, look, why don't you join Six Mill as a producer? And I said, <clears throat> uh, producing is kind of a pain in the neck, Harv. You know, let me just write and direct for you. That's what I really want to do the most. And, and, and Harv said, well, Kenny, let me explain this to you. In television, it's the producer that controls the whole thing. The producer hires the writer. The producer hires the director. I said, stop right there, Harv. I get it, I'll take the job.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you, know? yeah you almost talked yourself out of it. Well, yeah, that's yeah.
2: exactly it. I, I, well, I've done that many times, Jonathan. I have, I've turned down more work and more money than I ever could possibly have made in this town uh, because I've, I've got to really care about, about what I do. Um, it's funny... Um, uh, and when I was at Carnegie, I used to carry the, the, my, my books and, and book covers with Andrew Carnegie's seal on it, and there was a motto on the seal. And his motto was, my heart is in the work. And I remember thinking, oh, I get it. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, if your heart isn't in it then you can't do, you know, your, your very best job. And um, so I've turned down a lot of things over the years that uh, that would have made me a much wealthier person. But I just knew that I would not be able to get my, uh, my heart into them, you know? So uh, um, that's, you know, what I've tried to be true to.
0: And how long did Bionic Woman run?
2: I think ultimately it ran about three years. I left after the uh, after the second season. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
2: uh, It was, uh, you know, Bill Bixby and I often talked about how there are a lot of schools that you can go to. Like Bill went to Berkeley to learn his acting craft, and I went to Carnegie. And there's a lot of schools that will train you to be a writer, director, producer, actor, whatever. But there isn't any school that will teach you how to deal with fame, and, uh, uh, and, I, had, and I, had, I have seen over the years uh, people who, you know, they have one hit record and they think they are George Gershwin, you know, mm-hmm. and, or the Beatles, and, uh, and they're not. uh, but they think they are and they act like they are. And stardom uh, uh, hit Lindsay pretty hard Uh, and she was in a a difficult relationship at the time with her husband uh, and who was very jealous of her success. Um, And there was a lot of uh, substance abuse going around in Hollywood then, which I managed to duck, but uh, a lot of people uh, didn't. I remember walking down onto the set uh, where uh, my bionic woman company was, was shooting one day and, you know, we have a craft service table where there's munchies laid out that people can can have during the day while you're working. And you go over and pick up an apple or yogurt or something. Somebody had brought in a tray of brownies. Oh crap. And it was about half gone, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I walked onto the set, and the crew was like, "Whoa, Kenny, how are you, man? <laughs> wow, you know, we're doing some great shots here, man. It's really cool, you know. It's, did you bring anything to eat, man? I, you know, it's like, <laughs>
0: they all have the munchies." <laughs> and I
2: said, "Okay, I got to get off this train before it drives off a cliff." And uh, uh, it was uh, it was it was tough because the, for the first season of Bionic, it was great because Lindsay had just been uh, under contract to Universal. Had not really taken off, um, but was a f- brilliant actress, uh, and and had the ability. When Harve and I were looking to who to, at who to cast, I mean, we looked at Sally Field, we looked at Stephanie Powers. There was a number of women who were quite good and, and talented and lovely, but what Lindsay had. Um, was uh, I think it was actually Steve Cannell that suggested her to me because she had done a a Rockford files that really stuck out, and we looked at it, and what Lindsay had was the ability to make you feel like she was making it up as she went along. You never got the sense that Lindsay was doing lines that somebody had written it sounded totally spontaneous, and I was really intrigued by that and uh, uh, and then wrote. Uh, all the scripts into her vernacular as well. I spent a lot of time listening to how she talked and and then fashioned Jamie's dialogue so that it would really fit into Lindsay's mouth. Um, and for the first season, she was really totally engaged and it was great. But but then the the fame was just extraordinary because all of a sudden she had gone from being, you know, just a, a contract player to being a superstar on the cover of all the magazines and everything. And And it was tough to deal with. And she went through a hard time and it took her several years to sort of get her head clear and, and get back together and, and she has fortunately done that and we're good friends to this day but I eventually said no I think I better step away and it was about the same time that uh, I was doing had just done the pilot for the Incredible Hulk and uh, uh, and I decided uh, I was better off with uh, with Bill <laughs> and so I just uh, sort of took a side step into, into the Incredible Hulk which was a, a wonderful experience for all the years that we did it and uh, and. Was uh, uh, was terrific, and he and I had a, a lot of really knockdown, out arguments. But it was always about substance, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. There was never about Hollywood nonsense. There was never, "I'll be in my trailer with the vapors for a while," you know. There was none of that. And uh, and Lee Majors would like that too. Lee was, uh, you know, Lee could drink anybody I ever met under the table, and never be loaded at all and show up the next day and know his lines and hit his marks. And, you know, he was, he was a pro and, uh, uh, but it, um, uh, it was, it was a, a lesson in, in humility and, and, not to take yourself too seriously. You know? So, uh, uh, so it was good. But the, the, uh, the bionic shows and the Hulk, particularly, it was like they were all sort of like graduate school with pay as far as I was concerned.
0: There are a couple uh, stories that you say about the, uh, incredible Hulk pilot that I love. Um, The first one is when you guys built the lab, and you in the it's just an exterior of a building when you built the lab, right? And but it was so uh, realistic. 'Cause the, the post office
2: department the postal truck pulled up in front of it and the guy went to the front door to deliver a package and opened the front door and saw he was looking at a grassy hillside <laughs> <by the> building <laughs> and it was and the, the whole crew was just finishing up doing the, the uh, external uh, set decoration putting the greenery in and stuff and they just watched him go through it and and, and then applauded after he walked away and uh, sort of slinked back into his truck and drove away the other thing that was fun about yeah. the, 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 uh, the Hulk pilot there were a number of things but uh, the big set that we built that was the interior of that it was built on stage 25 at, uh, stage 20, yeah, no, 28 at Universal, um, which was, and we built this huge, Chuck Davis, my production designer, built this huge laboratory set that, uh, the creature was Vixby and Hulk that we're going to eventually break out of. But if you walked off of our super high tech set, and walked out the door of that. You were looking at the other end of the sta- of the big soundstage at at the um, theater from the Phantom of the
0: Opera. And I think that that one burned down a few years ago. Well, yeah, yeah, it didn't
2: burn down. They finally tore it down because okay. it was
0: the oldest
2: standing set.
0: In the world,
2: it, it was there from the Lon Chaney version in 1925.
0: So the set was still there, not not the stage. Which no, I, not the
2: stage. The, the set, the, the set of the theater with all the, the you know the seats in the theater and and the and the and the, uh, the high. It looked like inside of the Phantom of the Opera. That's incredible. I mean, it was it was really great. Um, but they, I draw as a matter of fact, I was on the lot. Gosh, I guess about uh, uh, around Christmas time, I was I had just done an episode of Chicago Med. Directed it for uh, friends of mine who were showrunners on it, and were my protégés at Universal, and um, and I was coming out of the editing room, and I said, I'm going to drive back onto the lot, and just look around the back lot a little bit, and Bruce was still there, the shark was still coming out mm-hmm. of the water to attack the trams, which is funny, but I got to, I passed stage 25, 26, and then there was no stage 28. And I, it was just gone. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the security guys said, "Oh yeah, last year we had to tear it down. It was just falling over." <laughs> you know? Wow! So, but I do have. Uh, I remember one of the times I was there. I carved a little little piece of wood out of the uh, out of the set from the Phantom of the Opera, and it's uh, it's ensconced in a little place of honor at my house. Stuff. <laughs> you know? the,
0: the the story that I love too is is a, the the finale of that pilot episode the lab explodes in the in the creation of the mo- of of the incredible hulk right and you told me this story that is so cinematic and so I'll, I'll let you tell it about something that may have just gone ro- that was about to go wrong with, after you guys had oh, yeah. all the, well, all then, the explosions. Yeah,
2: the, the, the quick version is that at the end of the movie, we needed to blow up and burn down the building, and for some reason no, my location manager could not find anybody that would let us blow up and burn down their building. Go figure. <laughs> uh, so that's where Chuck, uh, Chuck Davis came up with the idea of building this thing that looked bigger than it was uh, into the side of a uh, hillside at the College of the Canyons uh, north of L.A. Um, and so we were we we were all rigged to, to blow it up at the very, very end and um, uh, of the night. And I had to wrap by 1:30 because uh, they said <laughs> my production manager told me that the Universal executives were going to hang me by my thumbs if we didn't wrap <laughs> by 1:30. And uh, and when you're blowing something up like that, it's a it's a process where he, I talked to Tom Reba, my special effects guru, uh, and he explained to me that uh, I said, "How do we blow it up?" And he said, "Well, in back behind the set, we put a uh, a big 50-gallon oil drum and we." Put uh, um, a bomb in the bottom of it. I said, "What do you mean a bomb, Tommy?" He said, "I mean a bomb. It's a bomb. We're making a cannon, essentially, what we're doing." And they put a bomb in the bottom of this fifty-gallon oil drum. And then they put uh, big, heavy-duty uh, garbage bags down on the inside. And then they start, and then when we're ready to go, he, I have to like I tell Tommy we're ready to go, and then then he starts pouring the gasoline into the big plastic bag so that he's filling up this fifty-gallon oil drum with. Gasoline, um, and once we start to pour it, uh, he said it'll take about 15 minutes. And so, and so, don't feel like we can rush. We have to do it slowly because otherwise we get killed, literally. And um, uh, and then once it's in there, he said, Kenny, we have to blow it up. We can't walk away and leave it here. <laughs> You know, cause it's too dangerous. Um, so, okay, the time is passing, and it's like 10 after 1, 15 after 1, and I had told Tommy to get started pouring, and it's 25 after 1 and, uh, in the morning. And I'm um, saying, Tommy, almost just about, okay, finally I hear he's ready. And he also had told me that once, we st- once I said go, it would be about 10 seconds before there would actually be the explosion. And, uh, uh, because it was the chain of events that he had to, 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 do. And I said, okay, I say go, and then 10 seconds later it blows up. And he said, yes. All right. So he's finally ready. The gasoline is poured. We're hot. It's about 128 or something in the evening. And, uh, uh, and we're ready to go. And we, we rolled the cameras, speed on A camera, speed on the B camera. And I said, okay, Tommy, go. And the word go was no more out of my mouth than, uh, the A camera said I've lost power and I said <laughs> so the camera wouldn't get anything, right? But Tommy couldn't stop, and I had 10 seconds, right? So I went over, and I grabbed the cable, the power cable that was coming off the roof of the camera truck. We had the camera set up on top of the camera truck for the best angle. And I grabbed the cable, and I'm running the, the cable down, and this it's like a sea of cables, you know? It's mm-hmm. like a sea of snakes you're going through trying to find it. I finally found the place where somebody had kicked the plug out. I plugged it in. The A camera started rolling, and one second after that, the building blew up. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, one of my students said it's, it, it sounded a little bit like Doc at the end of uh, Back to the Future, where you know he he reaches he grabs the two ends of the cable and sticks them together at the very moment that the lightning bolt strikes, and uh, it was that kind of a night. And and we wrapped at 129 and uh, you know, and saved ourselves. <laughs> but, That's pretty uh, awesome. Yeah, but it was fun. And it's interestingly, there, there's a lot of the Hulk uh, that echoes into my new novel. Um, because the uh, uh, the Hulk, of course, was about a guy that had brought down a curse upon himself uh, and tampered with things better left to the gods. It was really sort of classic Greek tragedy, uh, and then the the hero is cursed with that and and has to go on a quest to try to find out what's uh, how he can make it go away, essentially, um, and uh, and he's being pursued also uh, by. Somebody that is determined to uh, uncover who he is, and um, not consciously, but uh, as I was creating um, uh, the man of legends, this new novel that uh, is just coming out on July first from Amazon, um, the, the story is very similar in, in many ways because it takes the story takes place in the book um, uh, over just New Year's weekend of two thousand and one, over like a three or four day period. But there are flashes back over two thousand years, uh, Jonathan back to the, the ancient holy Land, and in, really even further back than, than that into some of the primal images of, of Paradise Lost and really deep mythology um, and the hero is uh, is this flesh and blood guy uh, who made a mistake like like you or I could have easily have made, and he brought down this this grave set of circumstances and consequences onto uh, onto his his shoulders. And uh, the, it's a curse, essentially, that means that he has to stay alive, and he is forced to, tr- to travel, and cannot stay in one place more than three days, and has to move on. And that's what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. And, uh, and it has obviously become a quest for him to discover um, the answer to why and how how to redeem himself that that theme as a matter of fact discovery uh, discovering the reason for one's being that theme is is sort of runs through the whole book not just with my hero but with most of the principal players in the book who are all sort of looking for their reason for being and um and he's uh, obviously, in the course of, uh, of this, uh, he's had a profound impact on all the people that he's met over the last 20 centuries. Some of them are very famous historical people with whom he's encountered, and whom he's inspired in, in various ways or have made an impact on, that has really changed the course of human history for the last 2,000 years. He's been a pivotal influence on some of the major, major things uh, of human
0: history. Intentionally. Or- or is this just?
2: Uh, yeah, well, yes, uh, generally intentionally, and uh, it's not just for us. Generally Gump. trying to do good, but right. you know, sometimes no good deed goes unpunished. Um, you know, as as uh, uh, as, as comes becomes evident in part in part of the piece, but uh, uh, because I mean, he saved, for example, a small piece. He he saves the life of a Bavarian. Child in the in the in the Bavarian Alps in in the mid 1800s saves the child from freezing to death. It saves his life. It's a good thing. Well, yeah, it is a good thing until the child grows up to be the grandfather of Adolf Hitler. Sure. You know, and then suddenly, oops! You know, he's our hero has just made it, has just been, become responsible for World War II and the Holocaust and uh, you know and and everything else, and um, so that that haunt, that kind of thing haunts him sometimes. But generally, it is it has been for uh, for good and uh, uh, and and still had enormous impact. Uh, he has a, he encounters a, a, a wonderful a robust Scotsman named James Watt in the in, uh, in Scotland and who's been struggling to make this thing called a steam engine work you know and he hasn't been able to get it to work and our hero has some information from his travels over the years that that he's accumulated and he said well what about if we did this and this and suddenly he has helped James Watt create the steam engine which in turn of course creates the industrial revolution you know which is both good and bad Um, but also simultaneously uh, at the same time he's with Watt he uses the steam release Valve on the steam engine to heat up some milk for some coffee, and inadvertently creates the first cappuccino.
0: That's <laughs> funny.
2: So, so, there's moments like like that that, that have been uh, a lot of fun to uh, to play with, and um, he uh, inspired Levi Strauss to make what became a very popular style of clothing. And uh, he was a shipmate with Herman Melville on a whaling ship, saved Melville from the cannibals, and uh, uh, and then sort of nudged him toward uh, doing a book about the whaling experience that Melville had had. Um, Kublai Khan gave him this uh, venereal disease preventative, which he carried back to the Western civilization and introduced it to the Earl of Condom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so he's, he's, he's
0: had well, quite... Well, don't spoil the book for us.
2: So, we want to read. No, oh, no, no, no. It it's it's quite fun.
0: But to and it's to up for pre-order to Hulk, right now. If you guys to, want to pre-order it,
2: yeah. To go back to the Hulk reference, uh, Jonathan. The uh, um, in the in the Incredible Hulk, of course. I, I had used. Uh, I had been inspired to, to do the Incredible Hulk because I was in the middle of reading Les Misérables, and I had the fugitive concept and Inspector Javert in my head. So. That's when I got the idea of taking the, a little bit of Victor Hugo's brilliance and a little bit of Robert Louis Stevenson's Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde and uh, and and marrying it to this ludicrous thing called the Incredible Hulk and
0: doing really
2: an adult psychological drama um, and um, uh, and which our large our largest audience incidentally was always adult women and that's that's been true of actually all of my work in science fiction and speculative fiction including my, V
0: and A everything everything
2: from the very beginning my largest audience has i've had what the networks think are the perfect demographics my largest audience is adult women and then adult men and then teens and then kids so it's exactly the right you know flow for for getting having the broadest audience possible but um When I was doing the, uh, uh, I I had come across the the man who is the lead the principal in my book and the man of legends, uh, because he is a man of legend. He is a legendary character that most people have heard of uh, what he's called, but they they've never really investigated who he is. And uh, I I think I first stumbled across him. uh, Mark Twain had written about him, and uh, and then I realized that Percy Shelley. 50 years before Mark Twain had also written uh, poems about this man, having met him, apparently. And then I began digging deeper, and I discovered that there were reports of this man and documentation about this man uh, that went back into the 1500s, the 1300s, the 1200s. And I realized, wow, this is really an interesting character to, to deal with. First, of course, I was thinking of a screenplay, because that's how I think. But I realized that I couldn't service the, the character and the breadth of his life uh, in a two-hour movie. But if
0: he can't die, the life rides are going to be pretty, I mean, they're not up yet, kind of. <laughs> What's that? I said his life rights aren't up yet if he can't die. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's
2: that too, you know. But this is uh, a real person. <laughs> uh, but I, as I was began to craft it, I, I and I also knew that the that the, he had been pursued by the by the uh, authorities from the Vatican, uh, and so it, it was uh, who who become my Inspector Javert in the piece. The Vatican authorities have been pursuing my hero for the last sixteen hundred years and are closing in on him on this New Year's weekend in two thousand one. Uh, the latest nemesis is this. Uh, very duplicitous French priest who is uh, very clever and very ambitious and determined that he will be the one that brings this quarry to ground, you know, and um, so there's that going on, which is also similar to uh, uh, Dr. David Banner being pursued by the intrepid Jack McGee, the reporter from the National Mm -hmm. Register. I even used the National Register in the book, (laughs) as a matter of fact, and, um, uh, but also the the other thing that that was fun about the book was um, there are two women that are that are really seeking my hero, uh, and they're very different. One is a, is a newspaper reporter for a National Enquirer type tabloid, who has seen this man, our hero, in three different photographs, and he looks the same, but the photographs were taken 150 years apart, and it's like, wait a minute, and then she chances to see a local TV newscast where some unidentified heroic man has just rescued a five-year-old Latina girl from a burning tenement house in Spanish Harlem, and he got her to safety, but the fiery walls collapsed on him. He's got night burns on 90% of his body. His bones are broken. He's in a coma. He is not expected to live. But as he is being, she's watching the newscast, as he is being slipped into the paramedic van to go to the hospital, she gets a glimpse of his face and goes, holy cow, it's the guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and simultaneously, there's also a uh, an 85-year-old sort of Catherine Hepburn type, feisty New Englander, who is uh, a former United Nations envoy, and uh, she was also his lover, Sixty years ago, and the love of his life, and and uh, and she of his, uh, and she is so eager to reunite with him because she's slipping into Alzheimer's and is not going to have the memories much longer. And uh, so there's those folks, those two women that are that are looking to him, and it's kind of a cross, a love story for the ages kind of thing. And there's a fourth character that's very important in the book too, who is apparently been around as long as our hero has, who has been shadowing him for the last two millennia, and who seems to be... Totally charming. I, I used Leonardo DiCaprio in, and uh, Jude Law sort of in my head as I cr- uh, created this character who seems to be charming and friendly and has some answers that could help our guy, but he also seems to be an emissary of darker forces. He's so a bit of a
0: Loki character. Uh, yes,
2: <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, which is just the tip of the iceberg. He's really much worse than that, and it's uh, um, and it's um, you know it's kind of fun. The other thing that was fun and when I actually. Saw Sat down to write the book was to I, I envisioned sort of doing it like Ken Burns would do a documentary where my my journalist uh, has rounded up the, a number of people who were eyewitnesses to what happens over New Year's weekend and uh, and they're a real spectrum of, of New York people uh, and each of them uh, tells story Part, they're part of the story in the first person um, so that the book is uh, is really spoken in about 13, 14, 15 different voices of people, you know, talking. and so including it's like
0: World a... War Z. Did you ever read World War Z? The... Uh, That's how it's told. it's told. It's the telling of the zombie war, but through yeah. all these different... Uh, account.
2: I didn't read the, didn't read it originally, but I mean, I saw the film, but uh, not the book. But uh, Fairly it, different,
0: fairly different. Yeah, but, but this was fun.
2: Yeah. You know what was really fun about it was when we got around to doing the audiobook version of my novel, because I was able to bring in a dozen or so of my favorite actors, uh, many of whom worked with me on Alien Nation, uh, to take up the different roles. And, uh, uh, and <laughs> it was great. It was like we cool. We were doing a radio play. It was really cool.
0: That might appeal to podcast listeners who maybe like a variety of different voices in their week. You know? Well,
2: there it is. It's it's right there, and the and the actors, uh, their actors were all so good. Eric Pierpoint, uh, who was my lead alien in Alien Nation, um, did uh, the voice of Will, my hero for me, uh, and is it's it's, it's a, he's a blow away, and all of them that uh, that work with us, including one of the voices, is the five year old girl, <laughs> and uh, uh, so there's a real spectrum of, uh, of folks. Uh, uh, there's a real very very streetsy uh, graffiti artist uh, mixed ethnicity up in the Bronx he's a kid I actually knew uh, back in the 90s when I was uh, I was I wrote a film about the script that, one of my unproduced scripts about the guys that painted the sides of subway trains mm-hmm. you know and did graffiti art on the sides of subway trains and uh, uh, and I was able to use him and his particularly streetsy voice and and of course there's the voice of, of Hannah the old Catherine Hepburn type sure. who was uh, done by my friend on Carrie.
0: Golden Pond.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right on Golden Pond, and uh, my friend Kerry uh took took on the role of Hannah for me, and uh, um, and it's a uh, um, it's really a fun uh, piece to listen to.
0: Well, Geekscape, is, if you're looking for something to read, especially this summer, when if you guys are going to do any. You know, Days at the Beach, or you guys just want to lounge around and read a book, uh, Man of Legends isn't a bad uh, option. It comes out July 1st. You can pre-order it now, and there's also an audio book version.
2: Yeah, and it's also available right now already. What? Uh, it, was, it became an editor's choice on um, what Amazon calls Kindle First. If you go to Amazon.com um, backslash Kindle First, you can get the Kindle version of it right now, and I am very to be able to say that as the, the soon as it went, it went up, it became a bestseller and has been hovering in about the top five of their one million titles in, in Kindle. It's number five. Or Mostly right, women? Right, right around there, yeah. And more importantly, though, for me, Jonathan, is that the reader reviews uh, have been just extraordinarily positive. It's got like a 4.4 4 out of 5 stars uh, from all the hundred or so people that have reviewed it at this point, which is, that's the most rewarding thing for me, to see that, that the story that I wanted to tell and the themes that I wanted to explore, um, because it's more than just a, you know, an epic adventure and suspense and, and supernatural and all of that. There's some, there's some meat in it about how your actions impact on other people and can have an impact that you don't have any idea what it's going to be like.
0: Um, one thing is, uh, GeekScape, if you want to read more uh, about Kenny, we have an interview up on the website that our own Ali Hanley did uh, about the book. Um, she read the book. She loves the book. And, her it, heart. and it's up on GeekScape.net if you search for Man of Legends on the website. One thing I definitely wanted to ask you while I have you on the phone mm-hmm. is I was talking earlier before we had you on the phone about how traumatic I w- it was for me to watch that woman eat the hamster on the... <laughs> a uh, seminal moment. Because, you know, and I know it was a seminal moment because we saw, well, I mean, we saw the imagery from the invasion and the the opening moments. We saw that stuff in Independence Day. We saw that stuff and we still see <laughs> so much of the stuff that you designed. I mean, that was the opening of Independence Day was seeing those flying saucers going over our national yeah, monuments.
2: it's funny. I, I, a quick side story. Susie and I were in a, some awards ceremony uh, many years ago, back in the 90- 80s, I guess. And uh, as we were leaving, these two guys came running up to me in the parking lot and, uh, and said, Hey, Kenny, can we just say hi? We always wanted to meet you. I'm Dean Devlin, and this is Roland Emmerich. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, Oh, hi, guys. Uh, I said, Yeah, you know what? And this is a quote. Susie heard it. They said, We've been ripping you off for years. <laughs> and I said, Yeah, no kidding. And by the way, where's my cut of the $400 yeah. million guys?
0: Where's my and Stargate money? Yeah, uh, I was. And I was
2: in the, the Independence
0: Day money. Yeah. Uh, it's, but you, you mentioned a V uh, movie trilogy in the interview, a possibility of, of working on a V movie trilogy. And oh, V is yeah, one of my yeah, favorite absolutely. franchises. Well, what
2: happened was about, uh, I guess, two and a half, three years ago or so, I've forgotten exactly now, when I discovered that uh, I owned the motion picture rights to V. Uh, Warner's, I always knew had knew, owned the television rights, and I actually I thought they had their finger in, in anything that I might do in V. So I just sort of set it set it aside. Uh, but a, a few years ago, I discovered that I owned the motion picture rights, and Jonathan suddenly I had a lot of new best friends. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, we had meetings literally at every one of the major studios in town: uh, Universal, Hollywood, Paramount, Sony. Uh, you name it, we were there. Okay, and uh, and all of them wanted to give me really just an obscene amount of money to buy the rights, to let me produce, maybe let me write. They weren't sure, but probably. Uh, but for directing, you know, they were really thinking maybe uh, Michael Bay or somebody. Oh, and I, don't and do I, that, Kenny. Yeah and I said mm. I said no and you know what happens when you say no in Hollywood Jonathan they say okay okay we yeah. understand. We, we understand how much money do you really want you <laughs> know and I, right. I, said, I said no it's not about money so we've been endeavoring to set it up as an independent picture which is a a little tough
0: Climb that would be awesome, a, though.
2: Well, yeah, the, the uh, it, it really would be. And there's a huge fan base for it. It's just astonishing. If you Google V or V Visitors, you get like 60 or 70 pages of links mm-hmm. to people around the world. And uh, so we know that there's an audience out there. I've gotten the gazillions of uh, emails from people from all over the world and all ages and as many women as men. The same as as my audience has always been, and um, uh, and when Warner's has tried a couple of times to reboot it and reinvent, you know, reinvent it, uh, they missed the boat, and I. That's part of the reason I said no to the studios about V because I had seen people try to reimagine the incredible Hulk and reimagine the bionic woman and and just go right in the toilet with both of them because they missed the essence of what it was about and uh, and I just didn't want that to happen to V and so we are yes endeavoring and at this point have I have a meeting this afternoon as a matter of fact uh, we have been very close to the sixty million dollars that we need uh, to get the movie made and uh, if any of your uh, listeners have uh, uh, some ideas of where they can help us to find that sixty million that would be great, and right. uh, they can always contact me through my website and our, we have a good deal with the three or four finders that are working with us now because they get like two and a half percent of whatever money they bring in, which is a good piece of change, uh, as well as getting to come and hang around and maybe be an alien you know? <laughs> so and It would be the first of a trilogy uh, v the movie would be the first of a trilogy. the two sequels would be based on my novel v the Second Generation, which has more than enough material for two more full blown movies. So it's uh, it's really a, a brand name, uh, internationally known project that, uh, that we're just determined. You know what? Susie, my wife, really characterized it for me when all the offers were coming from the studios. She said, Kenny, would you rather the movie never got made than got made wrong by the wrong people?
0: And you said yes.
2: And I said, yeah, that's yeah. right. I did, Jonathan. I said, yeah, I would rather it never got made than got made wrong. Uh,
0: there's so There's enough we're trying derivative to make right material right out there. There's enough derivative material out there. You don't need the one with the actual, you don't, you don't <laughs> want the official one to field derivative.
2: Well, that's it. So many people have written to me and say, well, can't we have the real V? Where's Kenny's? And what I've done in the screenplay is, I mean, obviously it had to be brought up into the 21st century and all of that, but I, I didn't want to reimagine it. it. There was a lot of reasons why it was very successful to begin with, and all of those are the timeless reasons. And uh, uh, because of the character, because of the uh, the story being uh, the kind of a story, it's, a, it's about an oppressed people uh, fighting back. It's Spartacus and the Revolt of the slave. It's all of those you know, essential, visceral kind of stories that, uh, that humanity has always faced. Uh, uh, and so uh, that was important to, to, to really be true to what made it successful to begin with, and that's what we're determined to do.
0: Well, Geekscape is uh, there's so much more information. Kenny has a fan page on on uh, Facebook. I know you guys find us on on the Geekscape Facebook, so you yeah. might as well go over and throw him a like. You guys can uh, stay uh, appraised of all this stuff. The Man of Legends. You guys can uh, hear more about what he's got planned on V. Kenny, I want to come to your house and do another episode because there's so much more I want to talk to you about. <laughs> okay. Because because we, we didn't even talk about Shaquille O'Neal's steal. We didn't talk. I mean, we didn't talk about any of this stuff. Like and there's so much. Stuff and all of that. In you know? in in. in and maybe maybe I just come out to the valley and we do an episode. We just sit down and and do an episode one on one.
2: You can come to my office as or as Susie refers to it, my museum.
0: That'd be um, awesome.
2: And um, uh, and yeah, the, the Incredible Hulk original head is still sitting up there.
0: My goodness. Would <laughs> um, be fun. Geekscape is like you got you got to throw this guy a shout out where he he's responsible for so much that we love today and uh, and we've seen his we still see his ideas on the big screen. Um, you guys can pre-order now, or if you have a Kindle, uh, you guys can go on Amazon.com and get Man of Legends today, or you guys can get it in book form on the first, uh, there is an audio version. Uh, you can find more about, uh, Kenny at KennethJohnson.us, uh, Kenny thank you so much for being on the show I've got to come out and do this an oh it's my pleasure Jonathan, so much and I, and I, I love just want to pick your brain
2: I love hearing from folks that on the website there is a contact Kenny link and I will write back to you if you write to me and uh, and I love to hearing from the folks in the audience and uh, uh, because hey they're the ones that I do this for I got into this not because I was looking to try to make a lot of money in my life or wanted to be famous or anything like that I just wanted to tell stories and that's what I've always tried to do and what I'm, I'm hoping you know will continue this way and with the book and and with V the movie too
1: there's
0: so much I want to ask you. Um, thank okay. you for coming on the show.
2: My pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Kenny. Take care.
0: Kenny was awesome. It um, was great. Kenny so, was great.
1: So many good stories in there. <laughs> oh
0: man, uh, guys, go out and pick that book up because I'm guessing uh, if you valued any of those stories that he told us on the show, the the book can only give you more. Uh, I've known Kenny for several years and it was pretty awesome to look up and see that Allie had interviewed him on the website because it gave me a reason to reach out to Kenny and be like, Hey, uh, I knew you first. We should totally have you on the show (laughs) because I've been wanting to have Kenny talk to you Geekscape, for years. And, uh, I should probably go out to his office or his house and do probably what will turn out to be a two hour episode. Uh, let me know if you guys are into that. Uh, Feel free to find us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. Um, or on our website at geekscape.net. Uh, you can always email me at Jonathan at geekscape.net. Let me know if that would be something you're into, because obviously he has a lot of old, cool uh, you know, uh, stories about Hollywood and stories about screenwriting, directing, and, and television. So if that's something you're into, you can reach us there. I'm at Jonathan Lennon on Twitter, and there's also at geekscape.net on Twitter. Um, Lindsay, thank you for being you know, on Geekscape. Where can we find you?
1: Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm long in all fashions. Uh, at Lindsay k floyd on everything okay k phonetically k a y and Lindsay with a d s e y um not much exciting going on there but i'm one of the people that says more kenny more kenny
0: (laughs) i love having kenny on the show um guys thanks for listening we'll be back next week uh with more geekscape uh till then peace geek out